Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Oh, oh man. Oh, we're in for a good ride today. This is this is a this is a great part of Abram's story. Uh, because it's it involves a big lie. At least I think it's a lie. I do understand. You might not think it's a lie, and I can express it. Uh, you know, we'll we'll break that down later. But if they're looking generally at this story as a parent, if my child did something like this, I would say you lied to me. But there are those because Abram is the father of their faith. They do whatever gymnastics, theological gymnastics necessary um, in order to make this not a lie, that somehow this is an okay, righteous decision on his part. But awesomely, we all get that opportunity to choose. We don't have to, uh, yeah, we can make our own choice. So let's get into the story. We're in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we're starting in verse 10. Now there was, there was a, oh no, where did we leave off? Oh, we left off verse six. Sorry. I, yeah. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morum at Shechem. And at the same time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he sent out and toward the hills of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and uh, with Bethel on the west side and Ai on the east. And he built an altar for the Lord and he called it called on the name of the Lord, and Abram set out again and continued toward Negev. All right, so before I get to the big lie, obviously we got to get them established, right? Where we left off last week was they had arrived at Canaan. dun da da It's a big place. It's a country. Uh, you're not going to just arrive and be like, oh, this is, this is great. Let's live here. So there's, when they arrive, remember that the size of their, of their, contingency, right? It's huge. You got you got uh, shepherds and flocks and um, some security detail and carts and wheelbarrows and horses and cattle and camels and servants and 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 there's just there's no way to show up subtly in Abram's family because it's not just his, right? You got Lot and you've got all of his stuff, and you've got, uh, you just got a, a lot of memories from their previous life, and you know where their relatives are, where the family is from. They got all kinds of supplies, all kinds of storage. I'm telling you, this was a caravan in and of itself. So you don't show up in a, in a place and not make an impact. It's it's just the way it is. It's it's a huge day when they arrive. So then in verse six. He traveled through the land as far as these places, this, that, and the other. And then in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give you this land. So he built an altar there. So God is still speaking to Abram. He's, he's confirming with him that, listen, you've arrived at the right place. I'm going to do stuff here. You're going to be a part of it. Your family's going to get bigger. Your influence is going to get bigger. You're going to be blessed. Remember, I'm, I'm, I made a promise to you. All the earth will be blessed because of you. Your provision is going to bring a tremendous amounts of impact to the culture and the world over here. You don't have to worry about Nimrod anymore. You're in a good place. So the altar that he makes is kind of a, 
uh, a marker, a reminder, which is what altars are for. They're not magical places. They're, re- they're places of remembrance. He goes, this, is, this will happen. This is what I trust in. I trust in God to do this. So I'm guessing wherever he landed, uh, it's probably about a thousand, I, I don't know, uh, wait, 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 where am I? Sorry, I lost my place again. Oh, there you go. Uh, from there he went on, okay, so where he built the altar is probably where they kept about a, it's probably about a, you know, a space, uh, provision, water, etc. for about a thousand people. Like he expects to grow. So he doesn't just find a, a place big enough for him and his family and all their stuff. He finds a place big enough that will sustain about a thousand people. And he moves on from there. So he finds a good good spot. They pitch their tent. Uh, it's it's or the oral traditions say that they always pitched Sarah's tent first, which is beautiful, right? He makes a place uh, where, where he says they pitch the tent. They pitch his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. So there's uh, verse eight of chapter twelve. There he built another altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So he builds another altar for the family, basically for a place to go, worship, pray as a family. It doesn't mean that they were sacrificing animals on this thing. It just means that they built a place of remembrance. Uh, uh, you know, some people do that. Yeah, what do they do? They balance the rocks, you know, they stack a bunch of rocks as like a marker. Like we were here, we had some sort of connection to this place. We, the rocks may not last, you know, three weeks. It's okay. They just stack them up on each other and say, this is a marker. This is a place of remembrance. Now, the altar that Abram would have built here would have been uh, more permanent in that it wasn't just, you know, five rocks stacked on top of each other. It was something that would draw the family together. Let's go worship. Let's go to the altar. Let's go remember what God's promised to do for us. Let's re- let's be thankful for what he's given us. Let's, re- you know, let's uh, recount and re, uh, recenter our perspective on what's going on. Now he does all that. He also draws this altar because as the father of the faith, let's call him, as the one who uh, was discipled by Noah in the worship and following of a, of a monotheistic God, this was, this was something that he believed, and rightfully so, he believed was his responsibility to pass that information on. So the altar was also a place of, of teaching. It would be a place of growth, of discipleship, of development, of relational connections and impact to the surrounding area. So uh, Abram knew that over time, he was going to have a lot of visitors. He was going to have a lot of opportunities for influence. He was already wealthy, but God promised him basically extreme wealth. So he knew that people would want to come and listen to what it is he believed in, because everyone looks at the material things and says, whatever you worship, whatever you're doing, I want to do that. I want to come alongside that. Now, that's one of the, you know, one of the... uh um, <laughs> nuances of religion. Like religion comes in and says, you have to be wealthy so that you can influence uh, the culture. And there are many churches who believe in overcompensating their pastors because they want to communicate 
to the surrounding area, we take really good care of God's anointed. And at some some level, they do so in faith, saying if we take care of God's anointed, God will take care of us. So you've got, and I just, I know this from my experience in and around, you know, uh, churches that technically have a very poor um, demographic, but their pastor, you know, let's say he he wears, you know, $1,000 suits every Sunday, or they have, um, you know, he drives a, I, I don't know, is a Mercedes still an, ex- I, I know it's an expensive car, but I don't know if it's like got the same uh, <laughs> reputation as it used to, but let's say he drives a Mercedes or Bentley or something. I know Bentley has a great reputation. So Let's let's say let's say he drives a, a you know a Bentley. Now they might not be able to pay him anything on a salary, but they want to give the appearance that we take care of God's anointed, so therefore God will take care of us. So Abram knows that when people see what what he's brought to this land, when uh, he like I said, you he's not you can't come in subtle with the amount of stuff he came in with, and the amount of people that were with him. And as his flocks get around and his shepherds get out and they start conversating, there's going to be a lot of talk about this this belief in a single God, this single God, Yahweh. And people are going to want to be trained. So part of the idea behind this altar is it's also a place of training, growth, development, discipleship, and relationship. It gives a central location. Rather than going to the tent to do all of his teaching, if he's going to teach about God, he probably would go to the altar and talk to people there teach it like a class. And it, it might have had its own tent. It might have had its own shade covering so that people could be out there and, and worship God anytime during the day or night. From there, it says that Abram uh, set out and continued toward Negev. So Abram moves on to see more of the country. Now remember, this goes back to the earlier verse in, uh, where is it? Um, verse... Seven, huh. you said that really loud, Bob. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give you, I will give this land. Now, keep in mind that verse is open to interpretation. And I believe that in the future, the belief was the Lord will give us this land. Therefore, we must kill and wipe out everyone because that's the only way that that makes physical sense. I don't think God told Abram in that sentence. He was not saying, I'm going to give you a battle plan that will allow you and your descendants to commit, you know, ridiculous amounts of murder, genocide, infanticide, and and warfare across the land so that I can bless you. I, I just, that is not the way God operates. That is not the essence of love. But the concept starts here. To your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram in his mind says, I I need to you know, discover the land. I need to see what's going on. But more so, not because he thinks someday he might be doing battle there, but because he needs to find food and water and provision for all the livestock that he has. So he travels with a smaller group of people, probably... Some of his, we'll call them uh, overseers, over overseeing shepherds, uh, people who would, uh, you know, 
scope out the land, find water supply, find the trade routes, find uh, locals that would give him some insights. Clearly, he has, you know, he has the money so he can, you know, sit down at a local uh, shop, have some, you know, chai tea or sit around a hookah and uh, enjoy the afternoon with the elders and talk with them. And and they would uh, grill him as to where he's from and what he's what's he doing there. And he could tell them, answer those questions. But then, of course, in turn, they would have to answer his questions. And he knows that. So he's this is not a, even though this verse is pretty short. Abram set out. It probably was about a year of travel that he went about because he would have had a known. I mean, he would he would want to know the rhythms and patterns of weather around the land and the impact of weather around the land because there's dry plains and there's fertile valleys and there's uh, ocean front, uh, you know, windswept areas. There's desert like there's there's a lot to discover. And the Lord said, I'm giving you this land. So he's going to be out discovering all of these things. And that's all contained in verse nine of Genesis chapter 12. Now, in verse 10, this is what I was all fired up about, right? When I, I probably I, I got all fired up. And then I forget what parts we haven't covered yet. All right, so thank you for your patience. So here we have a lie. Like, for me, it's a lie. But again, we're going to go through this story, and you decide for yourself. Verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. So the family has, has been there, I'm thinking, for about a year. But... Relatively speaking, it's fairly soon after they settle, the famine starts. Now, famine uh, was not unusual, right? This is this is a dry season in which the crops don't uh, come to um, maturity, so the seeds aren't there for the next year, and the the grain isn't there to you know to develop uh, necessary foods to get through the dry season. So famine is is a it's it's pretty devastating. It it shifts the um, I don't want to I use culture a lot. Uh, the demographic every demographic is impacted by famine. So it's not one of those little things like somebody's having a bad year uh, or the wolves came and ate you know two of their best uh, breeders of sheep or whatever. It it this is this is a a countrywide issue. And so Abram does what is, we'll call it natural. He decides to go down to Egypt. Now, why Egypt? Well, Egypt clearly was not being impacted by the famine. Famines were often fairly localized. They, they kind of hit a region. They didn't necessarily hit the world. So Egypt clearly had more opportunities. They had provision. They had water. Uh, they had places for the flocks to be fed. So he moved, packed up and went to went to Egypt. Did God tell him to go to Egypt? No, but it did make sense to go to Egypt. I'm not saying God, you know, opposed him, but God knew what the possibilities were. He was like, okay, yeah, you can go. Listen, God is not sovereign in that he is going to force your decision. Don't look at this story in, well, in my opinion, you don't look at the story and say God sent him down there to test him. No, Abram made a decision. 
I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to provide for my, my flocks. I'm going to go to Egypt. It's what you do. When there's a famine in one part of the land, you go to the part of the land where there isn't a famine. Now, could he have stayed? I, I Sure, why not? Would it have been difficult? Absolutely. The famine was severe. Did he consult God? I have no idea. There's no record of it. I have no idea. But I don't think I don't think it was I don't think he considered this one of those decisions like wow I better check in with God. He looked around his shepherds were telling him yeah you know the the uh, the lands are drying up the uh, you know we're getting into arguments with other shepherds and other other large flocks because we're all trying to get into the same area for food and for water where our, our sheep are, and our goats and our cattle are getting mixed up. A lot of people are headed down to Egypt. There's evidently plenty of uh, opportunity down there along the Nile. Everything's green. Everything's available. So he, it could have been a very simple business decision. It doesn't mean it's sinful. doesn't mean it's wrong. But it doesn't necessarily mean that God told him to do it. Now, what's interesting to me is that going down to Egypt is, is something that uh, is, is something of a phrase that's used in a number of biblical stories, Right? I mean, just in, in, you know, Joseph went down to Egypt with Mary and, and Jesus. Uh, um, who else went down to Egypt? Now I'm drawing a complete blank. Dag Nabbit. I'll think of it. Anyways, let's move on. Verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Can I just say that's an awesome thing to say to your wife on a regular basis? Just, gentlemen, pay attention. That's a good thing to say. Then he says, verse 12, When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is, my, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live, because they're going to want to sleep with you. So say that you are my sister, so that I... <sighs> This is why I don't think God had something to do with this trip, because it seems to be motivated by selfishness, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very a beautiful a woman. So, Back to the beginning here. He enters in, he's headed down to Egypt. Dun, 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 they're walking down. Dun, dun, dun. They're getting closer. Abram is starting to feel a bit, a bit nervous. Why? Because he's out from where he was called to be. Not an unusual thing. When you are called to do something and you decide to walk away from it when you're not supposed to, sometimes you kind of get that sense. Like as you're walking it out, it's like, I don't know. Maybe I need to protect myself. Maybe I need to hedge of protection around me. Maybe I need to figure this out on my own. Like, again, I don't see anything where he goes to the Lord on this and says, okay, I might have made a bad decision or a rash decision or a business decision, but I didn't really get in with you about it. Probably should have checked in with you. What do you think I should do? Should I turn around and go back? Or should we go into Egypt? Will you protect me? Because I'm thinking they're going to look at my wife and think that she's gorgeous and kill me so that they can have her. Because Egyptians were known to be immoral, quote, immoral, i.e., 
murder was not that big of a deal for them. And taking someone's wife who was beautiful was a like kind of a an act of almost honor. Your wife is beautiful. Hmm, I think I'd like her. And then they, you know, trouble would ensue. So that reputation is starting to rattle around in Abram's mind. And he says to himself, I might need to put together a plan. So I imagine him sitting on his cart because I figure he's in charge. He's probably sitting on a cart. Maybe he's on a horse and he's riding along and he's he's mulling over a plan. What do, what do I do? What do I do? And the wind is blowing and he, he looks over and he catches Sarah's eye and she smiles at him and he smiles at her and thinks, oh man, she is dang good looking. All right. Now, wh- where... Did Sarah, she's 65 years old. Well, more than that, probably. And she's that gorgeous. She is that gorgeous. Now, now you have to explain that. I'm not saying 65-year-old women are ugly. I'm not. But there's an aspect of this whole story that hinges on the fact that she was viewed as beautiful. That was what we read, the last thing we read in in verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw Sarah, and she was a very beautiful woman. You can't mince those words up any other way when you look them up and define them. She was a very beautiful woman. No way around it. In all of that, the Egyptians agreed with him. It's one thing for the husband. Like I, I look at my wife honestly. I, mm, she, she's a beautiful woman. Everywhere I go, I think, I, I don't know of another woman that looks that good, who is anywhere close to my wife's age. But I'm her husband. If I walked into wherever, the state capital of somewhere. I would I expect everybody there to figure my wife's beautiful. But when they saw Sarah, they were like, wow. She is a very beautiful woman. Now, oral traditions in the Jewish uh, realm says that the Lord, out of out of favor and grace to Sarai, because she was barren, and he knew eventually she would be the mother of the of great nations he kept her looking about in her 20s in a, in her prime her skin was beautiful her hair was perfect there was no um wear and tear from you know months of travel and sunlight and wind and sand sarah was supernaturally kept young so, whatever was going on here, this is where you get to decide what what you want. Abram wants to Abram's motive on this plan is I want to stay alive. I want to get back to the promised land. I want to get back to the promised land with everything and maybe more than what I brought down here. So he goes to Sarah and says, "For my sake, say that you are are my sister so that I will be treated well. In other words, I will gain wealth because I know what happens when they think 
If they think you're my sister, they're going to bring me lots of gifts. They're going to bring all the suitors will show up. So, so make sure I'm treated well for your sake and my life won't be spared, will be spared. They're not going to kill me if I'm your brother. They will kill me if I'm your husband. If I'm your brother, they're going to try and bribe me and, and impress me with gifts. I will be treated really, really well. But if they think I'm your husband, they're going to look for an opportunity to wipe me out. So I want to get back to the promised land. I'd like to stay alive. I have a plan. Now, I don't know why he didn't just think this was a bad idea. I'm going to go, you know, back to the promised land. Even, even if it was, I'm going to go back, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into Egypt. I'm going to stay on the outskirts. We will figure out ways to bring our flocks in, but I'm not going to live there. I don't know. But a lot of times when you're kind of in your own world, making your own, I'll just call them business decisions, not that business decisions are bad or that you shouldn't use business principles. Please don't interpret it that way. But I think in this case, this is very selfishly motivated. That's really his heart here. It's it's motivated by selfishness, his protection, his provision, his uh, longevity. And uh, when you start to think and make decisions based on that, I'm not saying you're in sin, but you, you do open yourself up to negative ramifications. I know people that, you know, they really believe God has led them to do something, but to do so, unfortunately, you know, is financially very difficult or would lead to potential financial ruin. So they decide, I'm going to come up with a better plan. I'm going to do something else so that I provide for my family, so that I provide for my myself, so that my resume, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna work over here for a little while and then I'll do what I know God's called me to do. Then I'll go back to the promised land. That kind of mentality, again, I don't necessarily think it's sinful, but it opens yourself up to some interesting um, influences because the enemy knows if, <laughs> if if he can find a crack of religion or crack of, of, of deceit or crack of fear, he'll, he'll weasel his way in there and cause all kinds of havoc. And the Lord knows, listen, you are free to make this choice. I'm not going to force you. My goodness will always be waiting for you. I do not withhold my goodness from anyone. I do not. In other words, I don't, I don't just pull away and say, there you go, sucker. Now deal with it. I'll, you know, when you come back begging, then I will release my goodness again. He's like, I never pull it away. It's always going to be there. Your access to it is up to you. So he says, say that you're my sister, which is, it, honestly, it's a generic term. And it means many things. Sometimes it literally means my sister. Sometimes it means half-sister. Sometimes it just means a relative. Sometimes it means his bra a bride. Sometimes it's just figurative, like... Hey, sister, like it's a very generic term. So he uses the term on purpose because technically Sarai is his niece. I know, I know, I know here in America that just sounds gross, but it's true. So this is where the question comes in. Is he lying? Is this a lie? Tell everyone you're my sister, which... I know is not the word we usually use because you're my wife, but technically you are 
a relative of mine, and so we're not really lying. Like this is to me, you're lying, but but that's coming at it from a parent role. But I do, I I gotta admit, I've played these word games. I have, I have, I've played these word games. They're they're interesting because I would say most of the time they don't end up as good as I think they would. Because somewhere down the line, I actually have to define the word, <laughs> and then it's like, well, no, I didn't. I didn't know. I never said that. What I said was this, and what I meant was this. I mean, you know, you just took it wrong. That's that's the game that Abram's playing here. If he gets caught, he can say, well, no, you just misunderstood. I, you know, my language, in my language, sister can mean. Uh, bride, she wasn't lying. I mean, I just, I just, you know, I just play along with the with your interpretation. Who am I, as a guest of Egypt, to tell uh, a suitor or tell an official of the court that they misinterpreted my words? And so, yeah, I re- I'm going to receive all these gifts, and that's exactly what happens, right? Sarah goes along with the plan. Now, maybe she felt like she had to. It is a male-dominated society. Maybe she's like, yes, all right, I will tell. I'll use that word. And the suitors just started showing up because when the Egyptians saw her, she was a very beautiful woman. She was, she was in their opinion, she was young enough to marry and have children with. And she was beautiful enough that they wanted their children to look like her. And that's what I'm saying as awesome as, as many 65-plus-year-old women look, most you don't look at it and think, oh, yeah, she can have babies. She's young, fit, and, a, and clearly, you know, ready to, ready to be a mother. That's all I'm saying. When the Egyptians saw Sarai, they looked at her and thought, she's young and fit and ready to be a mother. That's, that's, a, a, a thing you have to have an answer for if you're telling this story. Either they're being supernaturally influenced or she's supernaturally young or something's going on here. Something's going on. You guys figure it out. I'm not here to tell you. So the suitors just start showing up. They show up with prize breeding donkeys, pri- you know, beautiful flocks of of female sheep, uh, goats, um, silks, uh, precious stones, jewelry for Sarai, jewelry for Abram. They they want you know they they show him choice property to feed his flocks on, and and they uh, they you know send by help so that he doesn't have to you know lift a finger during the day. They they take him out for dinner. They invite him to all the parties. He's He's just absorbed right in. Why? Because what he what he shows up with is he's clearly a very wealthy man. Like this doesn't happen to to Joe Shepherd. Joe Shepherd. <laughs> what kind of word is that? I don't know. To just the average shepherd coming down from a from Canaan where there's a famine. Most people are kind of refugee-ish, just kind of walking in finding a place where they can survive until the famine disappears. Abram shows up, and clearly this man has wealth, and he has a gorgeous sister who clearly is young enough to marry. And that's what they're trying to do. 
So they bring him into places of wealth, places of influence. It says, when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, which means they were interacting with Abram outside the palace. And 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 then during you know state dinners or conversations in the in the throne room, obviously immigration was probably one of those conversations, and they would say, Oh, Pharaoh, there's this one guy that came down from Canaan. He's not from Canaan, he's actually from Assyria where Nimrod runs the, the country. And I'm sure the Pharaoh knew who Nimrod was. Nimrod was a world-renowned leader, he just didn't rule the world yet because Dictators do eventually run out of influence. So, so they talked to him. You know, his name's Abram. Uh, he came. He's you know a wealthy man, wise man. Uh, interestingly, he worships only one God. We do find that fascinating. But he talks about him in in you know very uh, articulate. He's very wise in that in that area. Oh, and his and his sister. Oh, Pharaoh. I I mean I. I, I know what I'd pay for her. And others were like, yeah, I uh, I brought him this. I brought him this. We're trying to get in. But but he's very protective of his sister, and he won't let any of us, you know, sleep with her. Which is good, you know, as a brother. He's, he's, being, he's being righteous, you know. He's being righteous. He really believes that's what his God wants him to do. So he's protecting this girl, Sarai. Well... When Pharaoh hears all that, it says that he started to treat Abram well for her sake. And Abram started to acquire more sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So Pharaoh now says, all right, I want her. If all my officials are talking about her, then I want her because I'm the best. I'm the most amazing official, right? He views them, Pharaohs viewed themselves as, as, as a god, at least, if not the god, with lots of little gods that they also worshipped. So Pharaoh's, because of all that, Pharaoh is clearly open to the influence of the enemy, right? Bad things can happen to Pharaoh. He is not a follower or worshiper of Yahweh, but he's willing to interact with Abram on this because of who Sarah is. So he acquires Sarah to become his wife. Now, I don't know how quickly that might have happened. But Abram gets tons of gifts from Pharaoh, and then all the dignitaries are bringing him more gifts because now Sarai has been designated to become a wife of Pharaoh, which means eventually he's going to sleep with her and start having babies with her. But Abram is just gathering goods and gathering servants. And, and, and I don't know what's going on inside of his mind at this point. Does he look at all of this and say, this is all of God's favor. I am becoming wealthy. This was a very wise decision on my part. And then Pharaoh comes in and says, I'm going to take Sarah as my wife. And he does, it, there's no record of him objecting to this. Now, maybe at that point, he didn't think he could because it's Pharaoh. Maybe at that point, he thought, oh, wow, this has gone too far. Now, <laughs> right, now it's up to God. Now I have to trust God with Sarah's protection because, well, it, you know, 
Farrell came and took her. It's not my fault at this point. There's nothing else I can do. As often is the case, when we enter into things through pride or arrogance, or we start to use deception, we open ourselves up to a, you know, to a cascading effect of the results of those decisions. And that cascading effect can affect more than just us. I, I, I remember a, a saying from when I was a kid, when you enter into sin one by one, you pay for two by two. And, and, and the concept, I, I don't even know if that word, if that sentence makes sense, but it's how I remember it. Because the concept was the results of, of your of bad decisions and the results of good decisions. But but in this case, the saying really just goes with the bad ones. You pay for it like twice as but you think you think you're only gonna pay, you know, a little bit, you end up paying twice as much. It's never worth you went into sin thinking this was going to be a one-to-one ratio and you end up paying double or more. And that's what happens here. I think Abram made, made his plan to call Sarah his sister thinking no one's like no one's going to be hurt by this. Everything will be fine. It's a little lie. It, you know, we're down here. This was a good decision. Uh, I'll probably get some wealth out of it. I can play the politics game. I'm used to that. My you know, I was I was discipled by Noah. My father was in the court of Nimrod. Surely no one's that ruthless. And my father, you know, taught me how to survive in that. So I know how to deal with, with politicians and dignitaries. All that's good. And then all of a sudden things get out of hand. He's becoming incredibly wealthy and more influential. And then the Pharaoh sees Sarah and says, you know what? I want to marry her. And now he can't say no because he would have to expose the lie and then it says, verse 17, but the Lord, we'll get into that in a second, inflicted serious disease on, on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. Now, the word inflict means touched, the plague touched by something. And I don't, again, I don't think God sends this. I don't. I think Pharaoh's been wide open to this for years because of who he's with. And I do think, I think that the that the enemy sees an opportunity to bring destruction on the life of Pharaoh and the life of Sarai. But whatever he's struck with, whatever happens, it turns out his, we'll just say his uh, apparatus doesn't work. It's some sort of STD or ED or something, and it's and it spreads throughout uh, his household. In that, it's not even if even if it's an STD and his apparatus does work, the fact that he's not clean keeps him from being with her because he can't be seen as unclean. He can't be seen as somebody with a rash because he's a god. So there's there's layers of pride and arrogance and politics and and reputation all layered into whatever happened. And it doesn't hurt him, but it keeps him from sleeping with Sarah. And I don't know if Sarah was just going along for the ride at this point. If she felt completely isolated, you know, she clearly isn't being protected by Abram anymore. He turned her over like internally. She cannot be happy with her husband. 
She went along with the plan. Everything was going fine. He was getting incredibly wealthy. I kind of wonder if she hadn't leaned over one time and said, you know what? We we need to stop this. This is getting crazy. And he's like, hmm, it's only crazy because I'm getting rich. And then it got out of control. I just, I just uh, you know, again, I think God is good all the time. I don't think he inflicts anyone with serious diseases. I do think the enemy does. And I don't think the Lord sends the enemy to do this, like some sort of back deal mob boss thing. Hey, 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 Satan, come here. I need you to do a thing. Yeah? What do you want me to do? I need you to do a thing. See Pharaoh? Yeah, yeah. You have access to him? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's done all kinds of crazy evil stuff. I got lots of access. All right. I want you to use a little. I want you to just do a little thing. I don't want you to kill him. Can I can't kill him? I want to kill him. I want to kill him. No, 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 no. I just need you to make him, um, you know, unable to, you know, with my, uh, you know. Oh, oh, you want me to whack off his, no, good grief, don't cut it off. No, that's not what I'm saying. Just make it so he doesn't use it, okay? Oh, yeah, I got, I got something for that. I got something for that. No worry, boss, I got this. And off he goes down to Egypt. I don't I don't think there's any kind of conversation like that between God and, and, and the enemy. I do know people believe that. Matter of fact, Judaism very much believes that God works with Satan to do the bad stuff because God can't do the bad stuff. And Satan can't do anything without God's permission. So that's that's kind of their approach. What I do find fascinating is that in all what's going on, Pharaoh figures it out. It's Pharaoh who figures out God is involved in this, and it's tied into Abram and this, quote, sister of his. So he pulls Abram in. He has Abram, Abram probably thinking, oh, man, what's going on? What's going on? Like, am I going to get more goods? Am I going to get more riches? Is he going to give me a position in the courts? I mean, will I get to see my wife? Maybe I can, you know, we can hang out and, uh, you know, talk once in a while. I don't know. He summons Abram and he, and he asks him this question, what have you done to me? Abram's probably super confused. Uh, what, what have I done? I don't, I don't know what I've done. I mean, I'm, I've done nothing but serve you, king. Uh, you're, you're an amazing, you know, I came to your land. You're a gracious host. Uh, I've uh, been able to stay alive. You've you've enriched me. Everything's great. I don't understand. What have I done to you? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me Sarai was your wife? Oh, man, you ever been caught in a lie? It's bad, but when you're caught in a lie by, like, the ruler of a country who has made you incredibly wealthy... And you didn't know you were about to get caught in the lie. You figured everything was cool. Like, I cannot imagine the heart rate. Either it dropped to zero or was suddenly running around 200 beats a second, like a minute. Like, it was it was not a good situation. Abram was not feeling it right here. Verse 19, why did you say she is my sister? So that I would take her as my wife? Like, that's a question mark. Like, did you do this on purpose so that I would take her as my wife? 
Because that, my dear friend, is a serious act of treason. Now, I would imagine Abram's like, no, 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 no. Like, technically, you know, you misinterpreted my words. She is, she's my niece. Uh, so technically, I mean, I use the word, she's also my bride. I mean, the word can go either way. And I didn't, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't really explain that to people because I'm not from around here. I'm from, you know, Syria and, and I'm a refugee and we're just trying to survive till the famine's over. And I, I, you know, I just had all this pressure and people started bringing me gifts. Like he's, trust me, when you've made decisions based on, on, on self-protection, fear, worry, anxiety. You are the victim of everything. And so I see Abram just playing the victim all the way through. Pharaoh's not buying it. He just says, he just says, all right, here is your wife. Like there's the, the nuance of it is he almost tosses her to him. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gives the order, verse 20, about Abram to his men. He's like, they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So he releases uh, Abram and Sarah. He kicks them out of the country. He gets escorted out of the land so that everyone knows this guy is not welcome here. He gets to keep everything he, he got given because Pharaoh's thinking, this is this is the oral tradition, is Pharaoh let him keep everything because he thought, he thought if I take anything from him, whatever God he serves could really get me next time. Because Pharaoh gives credit to God for whatever it was that was in, inflicting his, uh, uh, impacting his apparatus. So they head back to the promised land. He's got quite a story to tell. He's got a ton more wealth, like ridiculous amounts of, of wealth, both in money, clothing, livestock, just ridiculous amounts. They didn't they 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 don't have any like political friends left in Egypt. So if a famine shows up again, he's not welcome back. As he's escorted out, not only is he escorted out because he, Pharaoh wants to communicate, hey, like this guy's not welcome back here anymore. He's also communicating to everybody, don't you take what, what is his. Like he needs to be protected because if you take what he has, I don't know what his God might do to me next. And I don't think Sarah's happy about this. I think Sarah's probably pretty upset with her husband, which had to make for an interesting conversation here and there around the fire. I imagine I, I would have, I'd apologize, but I don't know if Abram did or not. But I have a feeling as he's sitting there, maybe alone in his tent or even muttering to Lot, he's saying, I don't, I don't know, that might have been a bad choice. I mean, I know I'm wealthy, but I really didn't consult God on any of this. These decisions were made out of fear. And decisions made out of fear and worry, like it just knocks you off your center. Like we're created, right? We go back to the beginning. We're created in a, in a, as beings of light, uh, as beings that are in sync 
with the frequency of our creator. And when we get off that center and fear and worry and selfishness, all those things, they fragment our frequencies and they divide and and get us off that center, off of our true self, our true identity. So when we make decisions based out of fear and anxiety or worry, we set ourselves up to be out of sync with who are who we're created to be, with our true identity. And that that's why I think sometimes when you when you're alone and you're quiet, you have those questions come up like what's what's going on? And I wouldn't I would imagine Abram because he is a spiritual man and he does have tremendous discipling under Noah and he I, I think he sat there and thought I I I might have I might have approached this in inappropriately I I might have done this wrong I never actually heard from God to get down there I actually wasn't trusting Him to provide I mean He promised me great blessing and I somehow thought I needed to come up with it but I should have just waited for Him and I'm not even saying God wouldn't have told them to go to Egypt. But that's not what motivated Abram when he left. Anyways, <laughs> we've been on this episode for, for longer than usual. I appreciate you guys hanging out. This is a great story. Lots of stuff to consider. Lots of stuff to, to layer in. Our decisions matter. We are free to make them. God's goodness never leaves us. But we have an, we, we have an obligation to make our decisions out of our true identity. And always go back to the beginning to find that true identity. Have yourself a great day, everyone. I'll see you next week on The Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Well, here we go again. And of course, as always, you know, if you if you like my thoughts at the end of this uh, end of these episodes, feel free to go to my Bob Thoughts page on Facebook. I have thoughts on all kinds of subjects, and I, I tend to go about anywhere from from probably five to ten minutes on each one of them. But sometimes they're a little random. Sometimes they're a little confusing because actually that's the way my thoughts are. Sometimes they're random. Sometimes they're a little confusing. But on with today's thoughts. So the first thing I want to I wanted to expand on is that idea that fear and worry and selfishness. These are things that if we make decisions based on these things, they get us off of our center. They get us out of rhythm with the, fre- with the frequency of heaven. And by getting out of rhythm with the frequency of heaven, we start to choose things that don't bring hope, don't bring vision, don't bring uh, optimism, don't bring uh, joy. Uh, and, and in doing so, right, we start to change the trajectory of our, of our purpose, of our identity, of our things that go back to the beginning, which is always the theme of Genesis, is to go back to our beginning, go back to where, and, uh, where, we, where, where we were created <laughs> and, and what we were created for. I laugh. Every time I stutter, I laugh because I get a lot of joy knowing that at one point in my life, I stuttered a lot, and uh, my mom and other professionals just worked really hard at getting my brain to slow down and and my mouth to catch up and uh, then sometimes it still doesn't work and it makes me chuckle because it's like wow my brain still wants to go 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 and then my my mouth doesn't doesn't quite <laughs> doesn't quite formulate everything and sometimes that's what makes it very hard for like dictation uh, software to catch up because uh, 
I say an entire sentence is in sent, uh, an entire sentence in one syllable. <laughs> I did it again, and it has no idea what I tried to say. All right, on on with my thoughts. So as as often with with me, because I've been in ministry and and specifically either church or camp ministry since I was nineteen, I've seen a lot of decisions that are based in fear and selfishness and worry, and and sometimes that that is couched in the concept of wisdom and discernment and uh, we're going to do what's right for everyone and uh, we don't want to we don't want to um, expose ourselves in a, in a way that would put us up for uh, you know ridicule uh, we don't want to be on YouTube we don't want Facebook to come after us we don't want to lose you know we don't want to lose money like there's all kinds of ways that they couch it but the bottom line is the board the director, the pastor, whatever, whoever, and it could, it's not, it's not just the places I've been. I mean, it's, it's anywhere. It could be even your local business, the, the board, the director, the owner, the employer. They make a decision based in fear and worry and selfishness. And in the end, you start to feel that in the atmosphere of the business or in the church or in the, at the campground or the conference center. You start, to, you start to sense this atmosphere of, we need to be careful, we need to make sure we do things that we can't get it wrong, we don't want anything bad to happen. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be smart, and I'm not saying there isn't wisdom to, to consider, but you know what I'm talking about if you've made these kind of decisions. You can pretend that you've made wise decisions. You can pretend that you've made, uh, uh, you know, non-fearful, peaceful decisions, but you know and I know you're making decisions so that you don't look bad, so that your paycheck doesn't get impacted, so that your business will you know, not suffer. And you say, well, Bob, that's just, that's just good business. But here's the thing. Most of the time when we're making those decisions, we have an option on the table that's risky. We have an option on the table that says, if I do this and God doesn't show up, I'm, I'm going to, like, I, I, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I've got to make a decision here, or we've got to make a decision. We as a board, we as a group, we as an uh, 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 board of directors, I already said board, didn't I? We as an executive committee, we have to make a decision here, and it's risky if God doesn't show up. And that goes to the story of Abraham, which we've been covering. He made a decision to move forward on a plan that if God didn't show up, it was going to be risky. And he made the decision to go to Egypt. Now, this was not an evil decision. But while there, he decided everything was on his own. While there... He decided, I got to make something happen. And that becomes the mantra of people that make decisions out of fear, worry, and selfishness. They start this whole thing of, well, we got to make it happen. Well, this is our decision. Now we've got to do the work. This is the vision. I want everybody on board. If you're not on board with our plan, then you need to just, just leave now, right? They threaten your job and your paycheck. I've had that happen to me. Either get on board or get out. 
literally had that said to me in a meeting. Bob, either, either get on board with this plan or you probably need to find somewhere else to be. And, you know, I didn't decide that immediately, but over the next few months in that particular storyline, yes, I did ultimately leave because I thought this is not the type of leadership I want to be under anymore. I'd been under it before and I recognized it again and I was like, nope, not for me. Not by choice anyways, it's, uh, you know. And I'm not saying I've never made a decision out of fear, selfishness and worry. That's, that, that, that's be absolutely arrogant and ignorant of me to make such a statement. I have. And I might do it again, but I tell you, I try to avoid it now at all costs. Because I know what it costs. I know where it leaves you. And it leaves you in a, in a, in a world of, of mundane, cloudy, uh, aimless, visionless, constantly depending on other people to come up with, with ideas because you've lost your way. Uh, not the kind of leadership I want to bring anywhere. I, I know this one's already seven minutes, but, but listen, I'll just touch on this. The, dualism mind, the dualistic mindset of, of God that, that a lot of people see where God does a good thing, a bad thing, and then does a good thing to make himself look even better. People bring that, put that on God all the time, that somehow God and Satan work together. I kind of made, had some fun with it in, in, the, uh, in the episode, but so many people really preach a God who does that, where he kind of pulls Satan in and says, hey, I need you to do a thing for me because I need to show up later and do something else that's really good. But at first, I need something bad to happen. And, and that whole idea of dualism, I've touched on on my Facebook page um, called Bob Thoughts. Go there. Check it out. It's, it's called dualism. I actually did a, I did a quick thing on TikTok about it as well. If you follow me on TikTok, the Bob Switzer uh, on TikTok. Anyways, a little bit more there if you want more on it. And uh, I'm sure it'll come up again because, man, it is, it is a hideous and insidious mindset that a lot of people have about God. You'll hear it uh, come up throughout this story. I think God is all good all the time. I think he is all light and in him is no darkness at all. And I think it's really important that we don't call evil things good. That's, a, that's, that's just really important. All right, all right. Hey, everyone, thanks a lot for listening. I'll, I'll catch you again next week on The Epic Narrative. everyone thanks for listening if you like what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use you can also reach out to bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com see you next week guys